Today we are going to uh, pay an homage to an important anniversary and birth date of the Americans with Disability Act, 32 years old, I believe yesterday. One of the authors, Lex Frieden, professor of UT Health at the UT Health School of Biomedical Informatics, as well as directing the Independent Living Research Utilization Program at the Institute of Rehab and Research at Memorial Hermann. Uh, again, one of the architects of the American with Disabilities Act of 1990. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, how much that has done and what is left to be done, and perhaps even sort of fold it into the current issue of COVID and long COVID. There's all this um, consternation and sort of really excesses in the press about uh, a wave of disability, but that doesn't uh, minimize the fact that there will be people that will have disability for sure, like with any serious illness. And uh, we'll sort of talk about what what the American with Disabilities Act has done to protect all of us, and particularly as we age, we all may become uh, may become increasingly relevant. So let's get right to it. Our laws, as it pertain to substances, are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin. Ridiculous. I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell you think I learned that? I'm just saying, you go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it, I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy, you go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great, you'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. The parallel economy has empowered us to care for our health, well-being, as well as longevity. Likewise, for us pet parents who now have a place to go when it comes to keeping the family dogs, cats, even horses in the best shape possible. As a dog dad, I'm thrilled to be working with Pet Club 24-7, a company founded by two guys who lost dogs to serious conditions, including cancer. Pet Club 24-7 has an incredible array of products, including a line of supplements for humans, such as the Inforce Plus Corollius Versicolor and Inforce Corollius Versicolor with Reishi. My friend and colleague, Christina Ferrari, a cancer survivor herself, swears by it. When I was diagnosed, the doctor in the emergency room told me, you have two years to live. Oh boy. Along with the stem cell, I took these. I have been in remission for eight years now. For dogs, mush puppy treats are a fan favorite. Rex, you want to, oh boy. Oh, he came right. Oh, there he is. They are also made with the Coriolis Versicolor Mushroom, which supports their immune system, according to hundreds of clinical studies. Here's Kristen Ludlow, National Vice President. That strain does matter. We do have the most potent strain, and we also extract it in a proprietary way. And that's why we've been having such wonderful experiences with these products. Mush puppies are made here in the U.S. There are no fillers. It's non-addicting. Your dog can't accidentally overdose. Go to drdrew.com slash petclub247 for a discount off the list price. That is drdrew.com. P-E-T-C-L-U-B-247, Pet Club 247. And welcome, everyone. As I said, we will be celebrating the birth date of the American with Disabilities Act of 1990 with Lex Frieden, who is one of the architects of this program. 
we are uh, also, of course, as always, out on Twitter Spaces where you can raise your hand. And if you agree to come up and ask questions, uh, it will be um, streamed out on multiple platforms, uh, including YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, everywhere. <laughs> Rumble, wherever else we can we stream it, we tend to stream it. I don't um, think you have to tell them now for Twitter because Clubhouse was different. That was like sort of a... It was we were reaching out, we were reaching thing. outside of social media. That, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Okay, all right, maybe I'll stop that little rejoinder. But I mean, people should know that it's going to be out there in perpetuity. Which after Twitter Space is over, it disappears, and then you know. But one of the reasons we are late is we had a little bit of uh, technical problems getting our guest in here, so he's going to be joining us via Zoom. We are going to wrap that uh, interview up uh, at some point here and start taking just calls on any topic if you wish. Uh, we will get to that a bit later, so please hang on if you have other issues or leftover questions from yesterday you want to get into. People seem very interested in that. Susan has a whole new idea for what she wants to do with Dr. Victory. Of course, we have not yet consulted Dr. Victory. So. No, we have. Okay, so who knows what, it, what that will actually mean. She used to work with uh, John on K on KBC, mm -hmm. and I used to listen to her religiously over there. And i got to say, she's always very spot on with her views and um you know she's very well educated and harvard medical school person public has, health training yeah i mean she's she's just so smart and yeah. she's down to earth but she's also not messing around yeah. you know she and she has a, a point of view and I, I don't necessarily i mean we we she and i can have very good in-depth conversations and i'm not necessarily um, endorsing her point of view or even agreeing with some of her stuff. We tend, but we tend to, it's hard for people to tell how we differ because these topics get very, very granular. But let's get into our, our guest today. Again, as I said, Lex Frieden is at the UT Health School of Biomedical Informatics and also the director of the Independent Living Research Utilization Program at the Institute for Rehabilitation and Research. Um, Lex, welcome to the program. Uh oh, I'm not hearing Lex. We have, we're we're so we're there. You are. I hear you off in the distance. There. Hold on one second. Uh, Caleb, uh, are you correcting that in our He's end, there. or is there something else needs to be done? I think okay. if you stop talking, we'll be able to hear him. Okay. Welcome, Lex. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm glad to be here. There you are. So start. Let's start with a little history, if you don't mind. Um, a what your personal journey was with disability and why this became something you had direct knowledge of uh, back in the 80s, what wasn't being done. And I literally can't remember a time without the Americans with Disabilities Act, so it's hard for me to even understand what that was like. Um, and I think California was a little ahead of the curve, so it was sort of things were getting done here already in the 80s. But t tell us what your journey was and what things were actually like for people back then. Now, I graduated from high school in 1967 and went to college and started my fall semester at Oklahoma State University in Stillwater, Oklahoma. Uh, about two months in, we were about to uh, get a break for the Thanksgiving holiday. And I went uh, driving around town with a group of other students. I was in the middle of the back seat. There were five of us in the car. The driver had been drinking. You know, we'd all been drinking, and uh, uh, we had a head-on collision with another carload of students who had been out that Saturday night, and uh, 13 of us went to the went to the clinic via ambulance. 
Um, I was the last one to be seen by the triage nurses because I was the only one that uh, wasn't bleeding. Uh, I didn't have any obvious wounds, and so they triaged me last. I kept complaining that I couldn't move, and the nurse uh, convinced me I was in shock and and laid a few more blankets on top of me. Finally, when the doctor saw me, he he diagnosed my spinal cord injury. I was treated in Oklahoma City and later at here in Houston at TIR and uh, TIRR is we call it TIR by the way, Doctor Drew. The uh, I, I just the, I just saw that yes. The the, the rehabilitation okay. experience for me was a good experience. And when I left here, my doctor said, you know, you can do anything you wanted to do before you broke your neck, if you can figure out how to do it on four wheels. And frankly, that wasn't difficult for me at the time because we had the astronauts floating around on their way to the moon. And they quite honestly had less mobility than I did. So I, I, I had a optimistic view of the world uh, given the diagnosis at that time, I applied to go back to college, this time at Oral Roberts University, because they had a brand new campus, a new built campus on the level plains of Oklahoma. Uh, they had level entrances, elevators. They were even recording courses. Uh, they would record the classes so that students who were not able to be there on one day could review the, the notes and the lectures from the day before. That was unique at that time and they turned me down for admission uh, because they said mm -hmm. i indicated i used a wheelchair for mobility and their policy was not to admit students with disabilities and that you know frankly that was pretty shocking it uh, i think it would be for anybody but that sort of started mm -hmm. my um, motivation uh, to work toward some kind of uh, equal treatment for people with disabilities and to ensure that people with disabilities had opportunities and could be productive without being frustrated by uh, illogical uh, rules, uh, standards, uh, admission criterion, and uh, job qualifications, frankly, that had nothing to do with the work they were going to do. So it was a, right. a, a great learning experience for me. So you're, you're literally describing a discrimination, that it was an active, open discrimination of people with disability, which is wild. Well, and I, I called them on it. I mean, I spoke to the dean of admissions uh, after, the, after I got that letter. And, and uh, the dean said, but, you know, there's nothing that says we can't establish our own admission criterion. There's, there, there's no law that prevents us from doing that. And uh, my conclusion was there ought to be a law. <laughs> and what, what did you do? What was the next move? Well, I began to talk with other people with disabilities and uh, we would meet and occasionally we would meet members of Congress and, and tell them how we were frustrated. People had various ideas. Some people wanted to amend the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Others didn't mm. think that was a good idea. Uh, some people wanted to work on state legislation the way they did. You mentioned California. California at that time had a lot of uh, progressive state 
uh, legislation. And uh, we in Texas tried to model some of the work that had been done in California, but collectively, uh, we felt like there needed to be some kind of federal pres uh, protection. And in 1983, I was invited to speak before a congressional committee that was uh, reauthorizing the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. So this was an 83 hearing uh, about a 73 law. And that, that 73 law was important because uh, there was a Title V that uh, Ted Kennedy introduced into the, the bill and it passed. And Title V prevented discrimination by public uh, organizations and in fact universities. Uh, and that bill passed in 1973 uh, but there were no regulations for it. And the disability community rallied in the late 70s uh, to get uh, the, the regulations uh, approved and signed so they would go into effect. So in 1978, we had rules that, uh, that uh, promulgated in effect the 73 Act that prevented the discrimination that occurred to me in 1968. And Oral Roberts sent me a letter in 1978, 10 years afterwards, and invited me to reapply as a student. I informed him I already wow. had a, a master's degree and wasn't interested <laughs> in But, uh, you know, we, where, where, that, go ahead. Where did you end up to school? I finished at the University of Tulsa. And then I went to graduate school at the University of Houston. Um, I did uh, some additional work at Cornell, and uh, all of that was a good experience for me. But in the after after we got those rules passed, the disability community was uh, empowered, and we thought we'd take the next step to get a law that covered everything. And in '83, mm -hmm. I made that testimony. In the testimony, the, the congressman. Uh, from California actually asked me what th I thought needed to be done to ensure equal opportunity for people with disabilities. And I told uh, the, the committee that I thought they needed to do a study, that I was one person, I couldn't represent the community. They should do a study and ask people with disabilities all over the country that question. And so there was a, a amendment in the Act that included provisions to authorize that study, and uh, a few weeks later, the president, uh, uh, the White House personnel, Reagan's presidential personnel office, asked me if I would come to Washington uh, to lead that study. In effect, and that was the establishment mm. of the National Council on the Handicap, as they called it then. So we worked, we we did the study, and and eventually. Uh, produced a recommendation for the ADA. And who was that? Uh, uh, what department were you in doing that study? Was that National yeah, Institute of Health or something? Or, yeah. yeah, yeah. Few people, few, few people understand it well enough to ask that question. Uh, Congress was concerned that if they put that that study under uh, any agency, uh, that agency would dictate the outcome, and they wanted an independent view. So they created, and this, this is a real exception, they created an independent federal agency called the National mm. Council on, on the Handicap, which is um, made up of 15, at the time, 
15 presidential person uh, appointees who uh, uh, who effectively uh, wrote the uh, proposal for the ADA uh, that was contained in a report we did called Toward Independence. See, it seems very smart to have done so, but it seems also uh, extraordinary in the face of a president that was claiming to you know shrink government <laughs> to to do you know, less. You know, we worried about that. We were, you know, I prayed over that before I agreed to take that position. But then when I saw the people who the president was considering appointing to the board, I thought, you know, this may be an exception. Uh, and an, another thing happened on the way to the party. And that is we, our, our report was due. It had a congressional due date of uh, January 1986. And uh, we were eager to present the report to the president uh, we imagined having a, a press conference there on the steps of the White House. And uh, at that point in time in the morning, when we were scheduled to have that press conference, uh, the space shuttle Challenger blew up. Mm. And of course, oh the goodness. president, this, you know, everything was scuttled. And uh, the yeah. president wasn't able to accommodate us anytime soon after that. So we met with the vice president, and that was fortuitous because George Bush uh, made it a commitment to work with us on that till it got done. And as uh, luck would have it, two years later, he was elected president. And among the, the promises he made to the American public in his first uh, speech after the inauguration was that he would work to get a bill passed and sign that would protect people with disabilities from discrimination. And that, you know, that was a huge, uh, uh, huge breakthrough. Were you happy with the initial uh, document? Oh, we loved the initial document. It was 13 pages long and, and anybody could read it and understand it in a few minutes. By the time Congress got finished with it, and I'm glad they, they, they you know, it, 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 it was 52 pages long and hard, hard to yeah. imagine somebody understanding that in, in one sitting. That sounds, uh, in today's uh, bureaucracy, that sounds like uh, cliff notes. You know, it sounds like you lucked out. Right. But uh, so I'm wondering uh, what work from the perspective of today's world, what work needs still to be done? Well, any law, you know this, the, the, the important part after the law is made is to implement it. And uh, George Bush wanted those regulations written as soon as possible, and they were all done within two years. So we began the implementation process early, and a lot of things happened early that were remarkable. Uh, virtually overnight, the public transit system in the United States become, became accessible to people with disabilities. Uh, one gap, by the way, in the ADA, and, and this we had this covered in our 13 pages, but the Congress took it out. And that was coverage of uh, discrimination in healthcare and healthcare insurance. Uh, we, we felt that mm -hmm. was important. It wasn't included. So after the ADA passed, we began to work on trying to fill that gap along with others. And, and since then, uh, the Supreme Court has ruled in the case of Olmstead uh, 
which made it clear that ADA covers opportunities and independence for people with intellectual disabilities. Uh, the, uh, uh, the ADA has been amended one time in 2008 and uh, George Bush, the, the second George Bush, signed that Amendments Act, which included um, uh, genetic uh, discrimination and protection and uh, and protection in the internet internet which is obviously important and didn't exist before 1990 so uh, we've right. been working since the law passed to fill these gaps and some of them are important and, and healthcare is one of them and and again back to today where where are we what needs to be done further well we you know we have to Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, uh, has has to be maintained. Uh, so many people are dependent on uh, healthcare insurance, and and they're able to get it because of the Affordable Care Act. And if that uh, piece of legislation goes away, or if significant parts of it uh, go away, there are going to be millions of Americans without health insurance. And that's the, and, and strictly based on the fact that they have disabilities. Well, I can't help it if I have a disability. I still need health care, and perhaps I need it worse right. than other people do. So the, these, right. you know, that's, that's a big issue. But we also this have to the, be concerned. The... Go ahead. Now, you mentioned it in your introduction. There are seventy-six million people in the United States who were born between 1946 and 1964. It's the largest demographic bubble uh, in our population. And these are uh, what we call uh, baby boomers. Uh, most of us are mm -hmm. retiring. And as we age, we become disabled uh, naturally. Some of us lose our vision, some our hearing. Some of us are memory, some of us are ability walk. I mean, people, you know, we are not uh, indestructible and time makes a difference in our lives. And as we age, we, we lose capacity. Uh, and this is a population that will soon need assistance. And we don't want to be uh, providing that assistance in nursing homes and institutions. Number one, it's not a good place to be for anybody. The quality of life is nil. Uh, we need to be providing assistance to people in their homes where they can age in place and, and, and live a life of uh, productivity and a high quality of life throughout their lives and not simply you know, pitch it off, yes, move to an institution I, I, support. I 100% agree with you. And, and we need to start having, the, I was saying it during COVID, when you know nursing homes were part of the headlines every day, that we it's an opportunity to to start talking about aging and end of life, and whether or not people ever want to be in a nursing facility, and what the what the options are when people become so disabled by the aging process or so medically decompensated that they need institutional support. We have lots of things we can do now that you know you don't have to go to a nursing home. I was there was a piece of data that I fell onto during the the darkest days of COVID, which was the average duration of uh, average life expectancy of a male admitted to a nursing home was six months. And do you really right. want to do do that? Do people want to I mean, do that? I, I know I don't. 
we've done those studies. It it is a death sentence, and I'm sorry to put yeah. it so strictly, but that's a fact, and and we can support that contention by data. Uh, and people who age in their homes in the community with their families and with their neighbors live a long and healthy life. And there's a misconception about the cost of care for older people. If their needs are met appropriately as they have them, uh, you know as uh, better than anybody else that we can uh, prevent the long-term effects of uh, disability and try to contain uh, some of the issues. But people will need help dressing and undressing. They may need help bathing. Uh, they may need a few hours of help a day. But if that's the case, yeah. why would you pay for 24 hour a day uh, care in an institution? Well, Makes absolutely no sense. And from the standpoint so, of economics, uh, our, our, our public, uh, to the extent that they may want to share some of the costs, uh, will share a lot lower cost rate in the community than they will in an institutional setting. But to be fair, I, I do a lot of geriatric care. I worked in nursing home for years. And you do reach a point, or you, if you're lucky enough, so to speak, you reach a point where you need two people or more to turn, to clean, to feed, to deal with ongoing whatever neurological stuff is going on, bed sores, et cetera. And my point is, personally, having seen what that is, there's this thing called palliative care. If we get to that point, then there's things to be done too. And it, it, it's fine. It's good. This is about dignity and, and as you said, productivity and flourishing. And eventually aging gets to a point, if, if you're lucky enough, where it can, not always, it can become really a, 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 really a serious thing. And there's stuff to be done then too. But we got to all be talking about it realistically to plan from what you're talking about to what I'm talking about, it, it's all got to be laid out ahead of time. Not only that, we in the medical system have an obligation to help people understand all the resources that are available, and there are plenty. And you see, that circles back to the ADA. Uh, the, the, one of the <laughs> pillars of the ADA is choice. We don't have uh, opportunity unless we have choice. Uh, we don't have independence unless we have choice. And if the only yeah. option is to move into an institution, then we have a, a, a really, really, really challenging decision to make, which is effectively move into the institution. Wouldn't it be better yeah. if we could say, let's go to the uh, community and find caregivers who live in the community, who are looking for work, yeah. who want to help their neighbors and organize a system of, uh, of uh, an infrastructure of home-based care. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, most physicians, most, you know, there's visiting, there's all kinds of stuff available and, and we're getting better and better at it all the time. And we have to, because there's a, a lot of people are going to need it. Um, what is it that you're doing at TIER now? What's your job there? Well, my job at TIER is to uh, conduct a, a research program that looks at the issues we're talking about. Uh, to provide technical assistance to independent living centers. Uh, Dr. Drew, there are more than 400 centers for independent living run by people with disabilities around the country. And these centers provide technical, provide uh, peer counseling uh, to people with disabilities and, and other kinds of assistance, maybe even finding personal care aids. 
uh, here at Tier, uh, we feel like we're the, the 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 information source, and we work with those uh, programs. And uh, we also do advocacy. We operate the Southwest ADA Center, and uh, we answer uh, nine thousand calls a month uh, from people who are looking for information about their rights under the ADA, their obligations under the ADA, and uh, that's what we do at Tier Memorial Herman. I am uh, I'm watching a, a chat restream and also a rumble rant uh, section, and there's a lot of appreciation for what you have done. So I want to flip the script a little bit and ask you, wh what do you wish the non-disabled, the, the able-bodied would do to support and to uh, raise awareness? We've talked about the aging piece of this, but, but what, what can people do now? Well, I think people need to, as you suggested, uh, begin a dialogue with their neighbors, with their family members, with uh, their public officials uh, to talk about what we can do as a community to address these problems. Otherwise, each of us are going to deal with it uh, by ourselves. And many people don't have the capacity uh, to, to work out solutions to uh, home care, uh, and they wind up being victims of the default. Uh, we don't want that to happen. We want people to have a choice. And, and uh, if I have a choice of, of uh, hiring somebody in the neighborhood who wants to spend a couple hours in the morning and a couple hours in the evening helping me, that's the choice that I would like to have. But we don't have any kind of a system that will help identify those people. You know, wouldn't it be cool if we had an Uber-like care system? where when you're ready for help, you just dial the number and somebody pulls up with the skills to help you. I mean, we somebody's got to do that conversation. Yep. Yep. That makes perfect sense. Um, I, one of the things we promoted about our conversations, we were going to talk about sort of COVID long haul and uh, what the, the uh, disabilities act might be able to help protect those folks who are worried about disability from this illness. Now, uh, to be fair, we haven't really defined, we, I, I don't know, there's a, there, one of the problems with long hauler syndrome is it's not well defined. Is there adequate protection for people in the ADA as it pertains to this new disease? Absolutely. The, the ADA is not based on a disease, a diagnostic category or anything of that nature. The ADA defines disability based on what personal capacities may be compromised in the context of what you're trying to achieve. So if you have lost a major life function or even had one affected, and let's, let's define those as uh, hearing, uh, speaking, uh, viewing, uh, vision, uh, intellectual capacity, uh, memory, uh, mobility. I mean, you can identify major life functions. Pulmonary. pulmonary. Every every organ system can can get you down. Absolutely. GI, pulmonary, they can all, yeah. If it if it affects your behavior and your ability to engage in uh, in work, uh, in to engage in self care, uh, to engage in activities of daily living, then you have a disability under the ADA. As a matter of fact, if someone perceives you to be so affected you are protected mm. by the Americans with Disabilities Act. So, uh, you know, I would say that people who have COVID, uh, who have effects of that, uh, symptoms related to the COVID that affect their ability to work or do other activities, 
should not be discriminated against and may have protection under the ADA. Are, are there, there are areas that need further refinement? I'm thinking about neurological and psychiatric and behavioral stuff. I'm, I'm guessing that gets very into the weeds. Uh, does it, does it, is it hard for ADA to protect those folks? No. Uh, I, you know, the, the answer is no. Now, it may be hard for individuals to obtain protection, but according to the law, they are protected. And, uh, and they need to feel comfortable making complaints. I, one of the biggest problems, and, and again, we documented this in our research at UT and Tier. One of our, our biggest issues uh, is that the, the, the authorities that are responsible for implementing the law and for assuring a non-violation of the law uh, never get complaints. They don't get complaints from people that they should. I get calls all the time from people wanting to know uh, how the university can get by with not providing them uh, certain accommodations they need uh, to get through their classes. And my question to them is, have you asked the university to do it? Most often they say no. Uh, well, then you need to start there. Number two, uh, if you have asked and they haven't provided, have you filed a complaint? And most often they say no, and you need to move to that step. Uh, right now, the Department of Justice uh, can receive complaints about uh, violations of public uh, spaces and, and, and in public spaces. Uh, the EEOC can receive complaints about uh, employment violations of the ADA. And the U.S. attorney's offices around the country have been very good at uh, exploring some of these issues and ensuring compliance with the law. So compliance becomes one of the real challenges now, primarily because people don't make complaints. Well, I, I'm glad I asked that question because I hope it motivates people if, if they have any concerns or know someone who does to do exactly that. The other thing, Lex, that you've provided us with, uh, in addition to uh, interesting sort of historical sweep of all this, is uh, people are very inspired that one person can have this kind of an impact. Um, do you see it that way yourself? Has it been a satisfying experience or has it been a frustrating long experience? I mean, I have a lot of stories. A lot of things that, that only <laughs> I experienced, and but but everybody has stories, and everybody has the capacity to influence their their lives and and the world they live in. And I think sometimes we simply don't take advantage of the opportunities that we have to do that. I'm I'm uh, frequently reaching out to members of Congress, to people in the administration, to support uh, issues that are obviously need supporting and uh, and you know i'm frustrated because others don't do the same thing um, i can tell you briefly an anecdote uh, when i was uh, in washington and we were about to send our report uh, at the you know to to have an ada to the white house uh, we had sent a draft report over the day before and uh, the White House called me in the morning at seven o'clock the next morning. And uh, uh, one of the White House staff said, uh, you've sent us a report which cannot be published by this administration. And I said, the first point is 
we're not a part of the administration. We're an independent agency. And uh, the fellow who called me said, well, that may be the case, but you work for the president of the United States. He is the one who hired you and appointed your members. And I said, okay, point taken. He said, be here within yeah. 30 minutes uh, to discuss this report because we need you to make some changes in the report. And I said, I'll be there as soon as I can, but I'm not going to promise we make changes in it because we are following the law that we've been uh, given to do the report. And uh, I showed up there in his office. He tried to dictate changes in the report. I asked him, frankly, who's your boss? Is it the president? I'll talk to the president about it. He said, no, it's the chief of the Domestic Policy Council, Bill Roper. Uh, Dr. Roper, whom you may know, um, was a scholar, a graduate of the University of Alabama Medical School at uh, uh, Mobile, I think. But uh, Dr. Roper, I had heard about uh, before this occurred. And, and, uh, and I thought, you know, maybe... Maybe Dr. Roper would have a different view. So I asked uh, the fella, could I speak to Dr. Roper? And Dr. Roper took the time to meet. And he said, how can you defend this report? The president is not really a civil rights advocate, as you may have heard. And what you're asking for is something that uh, this administration might not necessarily uh, be wanting to spend time on. And I said, Dr. Roper, we have 36 million people with disabilities in the United States today. Most of them would work if they had the opportunity to do it. Uh, most of them would go to school if they weren't discriminated against. And, uh, and I said, uh, for goodness sakes, is that what Prince, is that, does that live up to the principles this nation was built on? Uh, are we really into uh, discouraging opportunity? And uh, do we want these people whom we spent millions of dollars providing health care to, uh, to keep them alive, sitting at home with their feet up on the table, drinking coffee and watching television? And Dr. Roper said, well, since you put it that way, I think the president would welcome this report. And in fact, I'll deliver it to him personally, recommend that he wow. endorsed it. And uh, two weeks later, we got a letter from the president thanking us for the hard work on this report and in fact, endorsing it. That the letter, by the That's way, is fantastic. on the wall behind me. You may be able to see it. Uh, is it the one over your left shoulder, sort of? It's over, yeah. I have to, no orientation. It's back next to a large frame document. Oh yeah, we see it back there. Yeah, I yeah. see it. That's so amazing, the, that's a great story. It, it, you know, it just represents little steps by little people uh, sometimes um, make big waves. And, uh, and my little steps, along with those of many others, uh, produced the Americans with Disabilities Act. Were it not for family members of people with disabilities, were it not for uh, gay and lesbian people at the time who actually stood up and said, uh, we want to stand with people with disabilities, were it not for African-Americans and black people in the United States at the time who stood up and say, we support this, there wouldn't be no, there would be no ADA. So, uh, you know, it wasn't the work of one person. Uh, I'm glad to be recognized for the little effort I put into it. 
it's a it's also a good a lesson in framing that you can change the argument completely just based on how you frame it. The, the other question I had this is really my last question. Do, did you encounter any of the sort of wranglings that were seem to be going through as a country today? Is like, well, the Constitution doesn't specify that the federal government should be involved in this. We want to leave it to the states. Was any of that kind of thing uh, a, a pushback that you got into? You know, that's the first thing we dealt with. The first thing yeah. we did when we wrote our report was to tie it to the Constitution and to determine whether there were any kind of link uh, to the the Constitution, and uh, we were able to do that. We actually found a, a piece of legislation dating back to the 19th century, where when railroads began to operate, uh, the Congress and and uh, the uh, Supreme Court agreed that the railroad trains must provide little wooden footsteps uh, for people to use when boarding on and off the trains. And that tied us directly, linked us to uh, federal legislation Genius. and to, uh, the Constitution. Genius. You would think the just the pursuit of happiness would be sort of in there as well. But I, I love the idea that, that previous Congress had not only contemplated that they had the authority, they did it, <laughs> which is sort of really the ultimate argument. Well, Lex, exactly. thank you so much for sharing the, your story with us and for doing the work you've done and continuing to do. And please, um, I feel like you've um, got a bunch of fans here now that would love to you know, help out in any way they can. Is there a website or anything they should go to if they want to be a part of the solutions? Well, there are many websites. I would recommend people who want to get involved and stay involved join uh, a national organization called the American Association of People with Disabilities. And uh, AAPD mm. is led by some ardent advocates. It's a, a good site and uh, good people. It's an opportunity to be engaged in advocacy. Uh, Dr. Drew, I, I want to thank you for shedding light on some of these issues and bringing light to the 32nd anniversary of the ADA. Um, and and I, you know, I ask you uh, to continue keeping the discussion of these important issues about independent living and opportunity uh, alive on your show and your dialogue. Done and done. And I'm just looking up the AAPD right now and seeing what I can get involved with there. So uh, hopefully we'll all do so. And uh, Lex, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Uh, one more thing. Anybody who finds yes. themselves with a question about ADA, I'm going to give you a national toll-free number, one 800 949 4232. That's the uh, ADA technical assistance line. Uh, the, there are sites all over the country, the regional sites where that phone number will be answered and people can get information about their rights under the ADA. Let's say it again, 800-949-4232. 1-800-949-4ADA. 4ADA. Uh, and then uh, I'm sure, Caleb, you can throw that up there at some point here. Let's yes, see. I'll put it up on the website. Uh, okay, fair enough. All right, Lex, thank you. We'll take a little break. Be back with your calls after this. Thanks, guys. I think we have found the holy grail of skincare. Genucel has absolutely changed, certainly my skincare regimen. I like that vitamin C serum, the under eye creams, skin nourishing primer. Susan loves the eyelash enhancers, uses it on her eyebrows as well. Genucel has everything to make us both feel and look amazing. Best part, 
the quality of the products. Using pure ingredients like antioxidants, copper peptides, and a proprietary calendula flower base, GenuCell knows how to formulate products to perfection without irritation. For Susan, she hates that annoying dry area under nose during allergy season, like right here. She's tried everything, but no matter what, the skin is flaky and dry. Nothing seemed to help until she started using GenuCell's Silky Smooth XV Moisturizer. Soaked right into the skin. She was hooked after one use and now loves all of their products as well. I am a snob when it comes to using products on my face. The dermatologist makes a ton of money from me. But when I was introduced to GenuCell, I was so happy because... It's so affordable and it works great. I was introduced to the Ultra Retinol Cream, which I love at night. All the eye creams are amazing. People notice my skin all the time and I'm so excited because it's actually working. Right now, you can try GenuCell's most popular collection of products and see what I'm talking about for yourself. Go to GenuCell.com and enter code DREW for 10% off. That is G-E-N-U-C-E-L.com and the code is D-R-E-W. Susan, I think, oh, there we go. I'm busily signing up for the uh, AAPD's email list and whatnot. It's a very interesting organization. Uh, all right, let's try to get some calls here. Uh, anything you guys want to talk about, uh, I am happy to do so. What you do is you just request to come up, and uh, I will bring you up here if you have any questions, anything left over from yesterday. And uh, as we normally remind you, we stream out on multiple platforms if um, if you are brought up here. Ask me anything. Ask me anything. That's really sort of the, the zone we're in right now. Uh, so let's uh, start with uh, Josh and see what he's got up his sleeve and what's going on. Hey, Dr. Drew. Hey, buddy. Um, I was just thinking of the homeless problem when you mentioned disability, and I know it's a different legal thing, um, but I feel like people with severe mental illness are disabled uh, because they need help, uh, obviously. And um, I wanted not to talk about the legal stuff, not to talk really about what your guest was talking about okay. and not, not, you know, but more like what to do with severely negative affect with people with severe sort of trauma history. Yeah. And it can be more, it's, it's almost, it's, it's more, um, you know, it's, it's more beyond the ability. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's, it's beyond the ability of the person to handle it, but it can also be beyond the ability of, someone else to handle even the best psychoanalyst or practitioner mm -hmm. and that's why i think they're on the street because we no one can help them no one's good enough to do it well mm, I, I mean i completely agree with you that um distress psychic distress can be more disabling than just about anything um and that neurological phenomenology is often very subtle you can't see it. It may be as simple as you can't organize dealing with your activities of daily living, or you can't organize, you know, sort of, it, it, the, again, the brain, there's uh, the way we are able to maintain our environment in which we live is because our brain is functioning, but there can be subtle regions of dysfunction that all of a sudden you can't manage your toiletry or you can't manage, uh, Sort of storing things, or you can't. It's overwhelming to think about uh, clothing or whatever. You know, there's all kinds of things that can happen neurologically, and um, the fact is, there is treatment for all of it. There's especially treatment for all the drug addiction, all the psychiatric stuff on the street. It's it's not as though there's not treatment for it. There's good treatment, and it works. The problem is, you're not allowed to render the care 
unless the patient is begging for it, you know, asking actively for the care, and they have to continue to ask for it even when the going gets rough. I, there really is, I've never seen anybody on the street that I felt I couldn't take treat or hadn't treated something very similar as successfully. Now, I'm not saying that all treatment is 100% successful, but there are a lot of treatment options these days. So you can, maybe even if your goal is not to restore to a completely flourishing existence, you can at least make people not die. Uh, you can pretty much do that now. And you can also give people the support that they need psychoneurobiologically, psychosocially, to be able to make up for whatever those shortcomings, whatever those deficiencies are in brain function. But not so if you're not allowed about, to. Not if you're not allowed to. What about the the day, you know, the days of like, you know, the family therapist who has been there and knows it in his own life. I mean, not this, you, not this. He'd be, he'd be on that's the streets. He'd be on the streets. That's exactly what I'm saying. So you have, you know, you can treat them, yeah. but it, it, it means taking them out of where they are and, yeah, you know, taking them to where you are essentially. Yeah, I mean, that's right. That's exactly you know, right. Hypothetically, that's, but so we need more people who are like, have been there in a sense or who who can who have you know had this amazing trauma history uh, because then at least they can go down there and say you know I've been there I've done right. this and maybe a combination and so it's not so extreme where the person has to go to a completely new setting or place. Mm. Um, well, let, let me just say, yeah, it does. But but you know that's why I you know encourage Anthony Brown for instance to speak out so much. I mean he was homeless you know criminal on the street uh and with with severe trauma issues severe now i the reason i have him speak uh, a lot you know one of my motivations for getting him out in front of people is not so homeless people hear him and are inspired it's so people who get in the way of treating the homeless people understand that you can bring people to a fully flourishing life again and that when they're in the state and he will tell you this i don't know if anthony if you're on the Restream right now, or if you're listening, oh, he's busy. He's out in Ohio right now. Um, but you're you're not you're you're not in a condition to be able to hear what Anthony's got to offer. So it's really the people that are getting in the way of those those of us that know how to render the services that we're trying to trying to reach. You know, the the government and the the do-gooders that really are doing bad, that are actually involved in actively harming people and killing them. It's really bad times. And if you've never had training in or never done this work, there's no way for you to know it. There's no way you could understand what can be done or how to do it. It takes years of exposure to this stuff to understand how to do it. So everyone that gets in the way of that, uh, I, you know, like Jesus, I guess, said, you know, they know not what they do, but they are really hurting a lot of people. And so back to like the actual treatment, I mm. mean, there are people listening to this program who might be listening because they're not doing that great. I mean, who knows? I, I'm, I could be in that list too. We all, we all have our issues. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's sort of like it's about integrating th that negative experience into normal human functioning, yes. I feel like. Yes, and yes. You're, you're, you're a neuroscience yeah. guy, you're, you know. Yeah. And it's like, that's really what we're talking about, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, in a way, I mean, you're talking about, you know, tolerating misery and, and owning misery and, you know, dealing with our, our, our regulatory system. And uh, as you and I have discussed before, it's others. It's our satellite brain systems that fix brain systems. It's not just all about the medication. All these other things that can also be very helpful for people who are severely ill. 
but it is literally what you're talking about. It's brains heal other brains. Uh, Anthony, I, I would look to, uh, you know, Alan Shore, Peter Fonagy, Stephen Porges, um, T uh, Cozzolino, all these guys. I mean, all that stuff. It's all, it's all now sort of becoming more. When I, when I uh, fell into this work and to that material, it was 25 plus years ago, and it was not sort of routinely embraced. And now it really is. Now it really is. Uh, vibes. You may have a question here. Let's get to your that to your question, Vibes. There you are. Hey, how you doing? Can you hear me? Yeah, gotcha. What's up? Hey, I appreciate you taking your time to talk to the folks. Uh, you know, I want to ask you a question. You know, me, myself, I had a, an addiction problem 19 years ago, and it's been 19 years drug-free. And to see all of a sudden that you see legal weed all over the place and how people are changing behind it, what are your thoughts with uh, them legalizing all this weed all over the place and people making it like yeah. it's uh, no big deal? Yeah. So I I, I try not to, get, not to get involved in the laws. In other words, I, I don't have, I don't, there's not such a thing as a good drug and a bad drug. And so when people start arguing that alcohol is legal and weed is illegal, that's illogical. That's, you know, it doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, but do you want... And I, we really tried to make alcohol illegal. That doesn't work so well. But and, and no drug is worse than alcohol in terms of its effect on society. So it becomes a weird discussion. I, I'm not looking for more things to be legal because when they're illegal, it helps me help the patients. Uh, though in this state, we made everything illegal. We made everything legal. You can do drugs. You can traffic drugs. You can steal to support your habit. That's California. And so people aren't coming to treatment because they're not having consequences from their using. And that's that's why they're dying. As it, as it pertains to cannabis specifically, because the cannabis that's out there, first of all, there's just this, there's a weird... Um, gloss over it like like not only is it not bad it's only good and that's just not true particularly at the the concentrations that that is out there right now and if you're dabbing you need to look at what you're doing it will affect you eventually it, it just will and i'm not passing judgment on anyone that does that and i'm not saying it's something that you know you can't do you're gonna do what you do and good on you but you're gonna have to deal with that eventually because if you're at that level it 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 gets it gets very uh, it gets addictive. It gets very addictive at that point, and it's much much harder to to see what's happening. And it's much more because again, when you get really going with a drug, you get something called anosognosia, which is a block of insight. You block the ability to see what's happening to you. It's a sort of the common term is denial, but denial actually has a kind of a biological basis to it. And when you really get going with something. You can't see what's happening to you. And that's how people get into real trouble. And uh, Vibes, I don't know what your your name is, but I'd, I'd love to hear it and congratulate you on your 17 years. I appreciate it. My name is Rob. Rob. Uh, so it's, it's been 19. Uh, 19. So, you know, the reason why I bring that up is because uh, it's not like when I try to talk to the people about this, it's not more of the law aspect, whether it should be legal or not, it's more from the side effect of, it has a lot of side effects that people don't realize are coming down the pipeline. Yep. Like one of the common one is a paranoia and psychosis. Yep. 
but trying to explain that to people, it's a little hard. So just to get your input, because I know you've treated a lot of people yeah, for yeah. a variety of addiction. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, you do get, you can, paranoia is extremely common with, with this stuff. Um, psychosis, not so common, but it does happen. There's anosognosia where the patient cannot be aware of their condition. It's a neurological deficit. Uh, and it happens with addiction. It happens with most serious mental illness. But I will tell you, Rob, the one thing that you can get through to people on is the cannabis hyperemesis, which happens very commonly. It goes down as a rare condition. It's common. Most people just don't tell you that they're vomiting three times a week. So if you ask them, ask everybody, you vomiting, you have reflux, you vomiting, if you ask your doctor what it's all about, that's the cannabis. And it will not stop until they stop. You know, it's interesting you say that because I actually came across somebody that I was just talking to a normal talk and he works at a, one of the uh, marijuana dispensaries. Mm. And he was telling me that one of the biggest side effects from people and, and a lot of people don't know this is, like you said, the uncontrollable vomiting, but also seizures. And that's pretty interesting. Seizures, again, it, that's kind of a, it's not that it happens. I, I wouldn't point at that as a common thing, but it does happen. But the emesis stuff it, it, you you can't imagine how many people tell me my boyfriend he vomits every day and he's seen all these doctors and he says endoscopies i'm like for god's sakes does he smoke weed every day oh yeah i make my wake and bake every day it's like yeah well guess what that's uh that's what's going on here we need to have paulina on the show yeah happy she to have had her it on. too yeah and yeah. she got all the way through college she's like oh, i have this I, she was going in and get endoscopies yeah. and throwing up and it just like all the time she she came to my house she was watching a movie she got triggered and threw up all over my she didn't get triggered my, she just that's part of the thing they, my silk rug cost me six hundred dollars to clean it caleb was, you trying to ask questions is that you yeah do you do you Liz? know why oh, yeah. so it's like like medical marijuana is one of the things that you know sometimes is recommended for people who have you know chronic nausea so why does it help with nausea for some people but then make it so much worse for others do the, you know? they're they, if you're using it, it's really not great for it's. It's an issue of the frequency, duration, and dose. And if you're using Marinol or something for nausea, that doesn't have these side effects. If you're using occasionally for nausea, no, you're not going to get the hyperemesis. It's really back into this high potency stuff where you start to see all the all the stuff, all the side effects. And uh, you're not really interested in dabbing when you're taking right. cannabis for for yeah for you're taking your vape pen or your or your whatever your bong and just having occasional use and that doesn't cause the hyperemesis and that can help with nausea. It's one of the it's one of the uh, paradoxical qualities, and it, it also can help with appetite and things like that. All right, Liz, what's going on? Hey, Doctor Drew. Hey now. How you doing? Good. Good, Susan. How's Hola. How's it hanging? Susan Prinsky. I love it. I love how he's like, oh, Susan Pinsky is here. Like as if it's like like so generic, as if it's not like you don't you don't like you don't sleep in the same bed every night together. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> but uh oh gosh, where do we start, Dr. Drew? Okay, gosh, I mean there's so many things here. Okay. Um and I feel like I always have to like rush through it because uh well, you know. We don't have all the time in the world, but uh, number one, I would like to say, uh, as far as um, the last caller, was it Rob? Rob. Um, and the 19 years? Yeah. Dude, I just want to give you a high five and mm. clap, and good for you, man, because, you know, good for you. I'm proud of you. I'm sure you're proud of yourself, and you should be. 
uh, it's a great it's it's a great thing that you've been able to do. Also, I, I, I'm wondering. I mean, Doctor Doctor Drew, it's you know. <sighs> Marijuana, we should have our own, you should have, I'm not saying we, I don't know why I'm saying we, you, (laughs) I guess I don't like to tell people what to do. So I'm like, I don't want to be like, you should have your own marijuana segment, but you should, right? I mean, it would be great. Well, we'll get, we'll get, uh, we'll get my daughter in here. Uh, She can talk about it as a, from personal experience. And, um, and I can sort of follow on. It's, you always kind of have to have a case to to talk about these things. And by the way, there's not a lot yeah. known about some of the things that are happening right now. Like they don't know what causes the cannabis hyperemesis. There's our book, and uh, and, and they don't know what caused it. The- they used to be called back when they first started observing it. They call it scrometing because the vomiting was so intense that people would scream while they vomited. And the only treatment we had for it was hot showers. Hot showers seems to help it. Wow. Now, Dr. Drew, can you please tell us about this? Because, I mean, I know a lot of stoners in my life, and I, I have never heard this kind of thing. You know what yeah, I mean? I'm not common. saying that I partake. Look up, look up, just look up, up just look up Is cannabis it- hyperemesis. And, and there'll be pages and pages and pages will pop up off Google. Well, she was waking up and taking bong hits for breakfast, yeah. you know. Yeah, but a lot of people do that. A lot of people do that. It's not uncommon. Yeah, and COVID was, was part not of the, kind. She was part of the, uh, well, what is the word that they, they have a way of uh, glossing over it? They call it uh, harm avoidance and they call it uh, rational use. So they have it's all so these kinds of ways, of, like ways of glossing over what's actually happening. <laughs> well, which I is, think, you know, I think moderation is... is key too. You know what I mean? Yes. I am not yes. anti weed. I, I am not anti weed. That is not my position. I, as I've always said, I mean, said, if I got not... up in the morning and drank a drink, Everybody would be all over my ass. Yes, you know what I mean? Would. But I don't. I wait till yes. five o'clock. Yes. And we're over or all over your ass five even then. Somewhere every time, huh, Susan? <laughs> even then we're all over her ass. So. No, but I mean she was just doing it all day and like thinking nothing like, you know, that I mean, I didn't know. I she lived in Brooklyn. Yeah. You know, and they but, but I guess my question is just like I, I know that I know a lot of people that mm-hmm. do exactly what Susan said. Yeah, yeah. They wake up and they take. Yeah, the, and some people know, have no problem and they function fine. Rib. But it, it, it's funny. It, it, it depends how much, how potent, how often this kind of stuff. And if you're using the high potency weed, it, it really it it will catch up with you. It just takes time. You, one of the more common things that happens uh, is that you start to get depressed. And and the the and then it, there's something about long term cannabis that eventually not may take years and years but eventually you get some depression and then what you what, or it might make you want to take other drugs too well but no like not, oh I've, no, I've got not, anxiety no, I need to no. take Clonopin that's, that's, got, that's Su- Su- what they say no that's here's what, what happens here is let me Susan tell you what happened a, I'm gonna put you on the Susan gonna, made a great point that's what people say no, no she didn't I'm gonna because I'm gonna tell maybe you maybe I'm wrong I, I could I, be wrong I I'm not disagree. a doctor Liz I'm putting you back in the in the I'm putting you on timeout because you you have to listen to what I'm saying and you will agree to me when I tell you exactly how it works. So the way it works, I've seen it a billion times, is people love weed. They love it. They're into it. They're doing it all the time. It works for them. After some period of time, it stops working as well. They start getting depression and anxiety. In response to that, they smoke a lot more and try to get a to get that dose up to get it back which brings back the relief 
and accelerates the decline into more anxiety and more depression. And Susan, that is when the clonopin comes in, and that's when people switch yeah, to other drugs. That's what I said. And, and they because they're now but then in they distress, don't stop the pot. And they will say things like the weed isn't working anymore. That kind of stuff. In fact, I know. Or they of, just get depressed, I, and then they are on. Then they have to take a bunch of. It, drugs that won't work. That won't work either. But I, I know a lot of uh, weed smokers that are aware of this phenomenon and will actually sort of pace themselves so they don't get that they start realizing if they don't take breaks they they start to have this sort of resistance to the effects and they start getting depressed and that kind of thing so it, it does happen i'm not a, when i take pot it just doesn't do much yeah i i it really doesn't do much for me i, I just don't understand it but again we have never done this high dose stuff and who knows i'll probably get no. psychotic oh i would not i get paranoid i remember in the 80s when i was in my teens i used to get really paranoid um I haven't done it really since then. Tea time. Tea time says Susan is not a doctor. What? Really? I'm not a doctor. But I what? said that. I'm not a doctor. Oh, it's tea time. How dare you? <laughs> and, uh, but I can say whatever I want because I don't have a medical license. Yeah. Okay. Casey's talking about taking the time off to get the tolerance down. That's right. That's what people do. They, they manipulate their side effects of the medication quite literally. Uh, okay, so let me look at your guys on the restream right now. I'm going to have to wrap this thing up in just a couple of minutes here. Uh, I mean, I just, I've seen, I've heard a lot of stories. I mean, we did a whole show about drug addiction called This Life You Live, hashtag you live. Yep. If you look it up, it's a couple com. hundred episodes. And yep. I think we interviewed everybody who was on Celebrity Rehab who's yep. who's alive um, and maybe some that weren't um, f with my show. And then, um, you know, Bob took us down so many paths with all the different addicts that we interviewed. And, you know, I've heard every story. But, you know, when I found out my daughter was in this, you know, it, we're not immune to it. You know what I mean? Not. It's just a because human condition. Drew, who is who he is, doesn't mean your kids aren't going to get addicted to something and have a, she's sober right now. Yeah. And, and she she's got really, COVID and I want to shout out to her. I she, wish she felt better today, but um, she did an unbelievable uh, turnaround. Commitment, yeah. Her commitment to recovery is just sensational. Well, her, Amazing. her boyfriend was kind of the one who was getting more into the depression and all that. And yeah. then she saw him have kind of a psychotic break because they were or withdrawing. Whatever. We don't know. And um, Let's, we from, went there from, from pot. We, we and don't so, know what happened. We do, we're not No, there. I'm not saying like her, her side of the story, but, it, but I did, I have heard stories many times and I've heard, you know, you helped Steve-O, mm -hmm. you helped, you know, I don't know what his drug of choice was, but I've seen you save a lot of people's lives and some of them were addicted to pot and mm -hmm. then That's it true. ended up were. being. Uh, That's why Joe Rogan got mad at me because I said that out loud before people understood that that was possible. But a lot of time like so. Xanax comes next and then they get addicted to the Xanax. What, what, if somebody's really into it, what comes next is stimulants. Because stimulants correct some of the depression from the cannabis. And so that's m the most common way people get to stimulants is this way I just described. At least historically, that's the way it always was. And, and you're right. The psychotropic medications are people that people go to doctors more and doctors hand more of that shit out. So. Well, Paulina was on yeah. that too. Here is Proposition right. 54, legislation for legalization of medical cocaine, everybody. So there's a, there's something up in California that's on the way to getting cocaine completely legalized. So there we go. Uh, whatever, everybody. Uh, no, Joe and I do not have a beef. Uh, but Joe used to sort of talk shit about me, and we talked about it since. We saw him recently. I guess yeah. you guys are friends. Again. Caleb, what are you asking? Oh, no, I was going to say that my, the, my friends that I knew in California, the ones that smoked the most weed, were also 
at the same time, they would abuse Adderall as well. So it, it, it fits. Mm. It all, that always, I didn't make sense to yeah. me because one seemed like it was an upper and one was a downer or something like that. Yeah. But that's what they would go. They, they literally weed, then do Adderall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they think about it in terms of uh, it'll let me. They, they the weed is the love of their life, right? And and they've known it for the first time. They got high off it. That's one of the characteristic features of cannabis addiction. You look right away. You love it. Uh, not immediately, like two or three. You you have to you have to your brain has to get primed to this. I love it effect. And usually it's two or three doses in. Sometimes it's the first dose. Um, and then it's, you know, what, what can I do to maintain that relationship with this thing I love so much? And stimulants tend to do that, which is why the, you know, again, you're right back to the psychotropics. They're getting it from doctors. It's Adderall, it's Klonopin, it's whatever. All right, everybody, tomorrow, um, we are back with you and, uh, we have Michael Huckman. He's, uh, another physician that we're going to talk. I, he has a program. Let me see. Do we have the information on his stuff coming in? He um, is the husband of the pediatrician we like to interview here, uh, Jessica. And uh, I don't know that I have any information about what he is bringing. I forgot. Okay. I did know at one point, and I asked, I asked specifically to have him booked because I was interested. Are we doing a show on Friday, Caleb? Uh, not this week. Okay. And uh, for those of you, we are. We, can I talk about the show we're contemplating doing? Uh, yes. Yeah, sure. Yeah, Caleb? let's talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> Which we have two. We have two things we're contemplating doing. One is a side by side commentary with the Reels um, live PD show, which is apparently now almost exclusively um, uh, responding to drug addicts and the psychiatric illnesses. And so I'm going to sort of explain oh, what the cops are coming up against. It is exclusively. It's always been that way from the start. Like even when this, yeah. it used to be called Live PD. So. As you can tell, I came on screen because we are the biggest fans of Live PD. And we were shocked whenever it was canceled because it's not like the show is just going around just showing cops in great light. It's showing live what's happening literally on the streets, what people are dealing yeah. with. And my wife and I, we yeah. were watching the new version of it called On Patrol Live. And every five minutes, I was pointing at the screen and saying, I really wish that we had Drew just on FaceTime on the side to say, what, what drugs this person is on, like what, what makes a person get violent, which drugs are causing them to collapse in front of a church, which drugs are causing them to attack someone or to speed off in the car and the police to chase them. And that's whenever you and I were talking yesterday and we thought, mm. why don't we do a, like, what was it? A, what's not the fear of the walking dead. It's where they would, you know, what was it called? Talking dead. The talking, talking dead, dead where they would stream at the same yeah. time as the TV show was live yeah. and have you give some yeah. commentary completely independently of it. And I think we could do it. I think so we might do something awesome. like that. I, I'm yeah. I'm willing to do it this Friday if you want, but I, I don't know about next Friday. Let me see what. Let me. Uh, we're gonna. I want to let them in New York. Yeah. We want them to. Uh, no, we're back. Oh yeah, yeah. They're working we're out some like Austin technical on issues Monday. on their side, but yeah. All right. If, so we'll if there's that anybody eventually. that watches the and show, then, then back to the yeah, hottest place in the world. And then Susan wants to put something together for me and Dr. Victor Kelly on Rumble. So she. I think they would be a Absolutely. good co-hosting situation and get some new new people in over there. I know, and then you guys who are over on Twitch and YouTube and Facebook mm -hmm. and Twitter can come over there for, you know, one show a week if you guys are into the whole uh, Kelly Victory. Controversial stuff. And Dr. Drew. That way we can build a, res build a relationship. Sorry. Rumble's been very oh. good to us. They, they put us on their homepage. YouTube mm -hmm. never does. Mm. Um, they've tried to put us on the back page for a really long time. And, you know, we love Facebook. Um, we want to, 
you know, see some of you guys over there too, but we just, we, we have, I don't know, Rumble's being cool. So. Oh, they want a Susan episode too. We could do that. Oh, where I have to be on the screen? Either on the screen or at least uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll just turn, you know, we can do calls where you sort of field some of the stuff. That's can we talk to psychic people? That's a different show. <laughs> you can do that uh, also if you wish. All right. Well, thank you all for being here. Thank you, Kayla, for producing. Where are you going, Susan? What are you doing? Computer's you're, dying. You're jumping around. I know. Sorry. So uh, <laughs> that might, it looked very odd. There's Michael Hockman coming in tomorrow. I believe uh, we'll, well, I'll get you all the details tomorrow. So, so hang out. And uh, next week, we are only in here on uh, Friday, right? Well, we're traveling Thursday. No, because, well, we, will we be in town fast we'll enough, in, early enough? Oh, oh, we have to fly. Yeah, yeah. next week. Sorry, you guys. We're going to be gone next week We can do Friday. Friday, yeah. Are you good for Friday? Caleb, next Caleb, Friday? Caleb, we have to schedule our, this, our tech guy. This Friday? The week from Friday. A week from Friday. Oh, yeah, we don't have any shows this week. Uh, we'll, let's, we can schedule this off the air. I, I think I could do it, uh, on, <laughs> yeah, on the 5th. You don't want to do August. stuff on the air like this? Yeah, let's, let's go ahead. Yeah. Let's go through the calendar right now. <laughs> our, our schedule, um, change. We're, we have yeah. to stay an extra night because we have a cool guest who, yeah. who's going to be there on Wednesday. So yeah. we have some, the after dark, uh, format is now bringing back the yes. comedians yeah, we're that bringing, we've well, had. And, and, it's comedians, not exclusively comedians, but yes, well, a lot podcasters, of people that are, yeah. you know, in the news, good podcasters, funny people. If you saw Luis Gomez in there with me, that they actually moved that one up to give you a, a flavor of what's going I on. I know that was funny. Uh, you guys check it out. Yeah, do check it out. New it out, uh, programming over at, at After Dark. So we have a really great guest. Can we tell him who it yeah. is? Yeah, we're gonna hang out with Jeff Ross. So yeah, he's funny. Yeah, he's good. He's, so good. he's gonna be in Austin, I guess, on Friday. So if anybody's in Austin, he's gonna be. Performing in Austin Friday the 5th and 6th. So we'll see him on Thursday the 4th. Right. Or no. Yeah. Right? Isn't that what it is? Uh, well, I'm... I'm oh, no, third... No, Wednesday he's performing night. He's performing Wednesday Thursday night. and Friday. Yeah, Wednesday so. night, I'm going to see him. Yeah. And, uh, we'll see him on Wednesday. Yeah. And then we will... I don't know when they'll air that, but we'll, we'll figure it out. Uh, but the point is maybe... He's like the last of the older generation of, of comics that's still alive. I want you to talk to him about that. Mm. I mean, Gilbert I mean, Gottfried died. Bob Saget. Um, there's still plenty. I mean, a lot of the look, ones that uh, Artie Lang continues to thrive. Uh, how, so, yeah, how's he yeah. still? Artie is good, and so just, <laughs> you need just, to get Artie Lang on Artie, your show. We need a new. We need a new show. I'm gonna create a new show called Artie Lives, <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and it's a great example of you can get through this stuff even when. But I mean, he's not on the big tour circuit like some of these guys. Like, yeah. You know, Jeff's still doing the tours sure. and telling his stories. Okay. I love him. Oh, you don't know that I went up on stage with him in New York City. Um, oh, yeah, that's right. It was just a couple months ago. <laughs> uh, he was doing his, you know, he roasts people and bring them up. And who wants to be roasted? And I just raised my hand. He goes, Drew, you, you sure? And I went, okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll help you out. What did he say about you? I don't remember. I just, I just remember I was thinking I got to help him. I, I, whatever he says is going to be, I'm up here to, to help out. Yeah. Take you know? it. Yeah. Take exactly. it like a man. Take, take, take some, uh, take some punches. <laughs> yeah. I remember him being kind of kind to me, I think. As, as it yeah. Went around, it's so. hard to roast you. Yeah. No, I, he can do it. Trust me. He's fine. Uh, so anyway, we are going to aim for a week from Friday, but we will have, be away all the middle part of the week. Uh, and then from New York, the following Tuesday, and then back here Maybe on Monday, Thursday. If, if 
We got to work it out with Caleb. Maybe Monday. As the well. engineer has to be in the house. All right, fair enough. All right, everybody, thank you so much. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> Sorry, we're giving him. Yeah, we're rambling. Three o'clock Pacific <laughs> time. See you then. <laughs> Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help.